Welcome to the Lulu Logic Podcast. I'm your host. I'm Nick Lewis. And here we are. We're back. Today's conversation. It was a great one. Talking about mental health. In a time where we have kids, adults going through COVID, facing reality of some life alone and Mental health is always an issue, and it's always something that's hard to talk about. I'm glad I could share my view today. Thank you to my guest on sharing his view today, and I hope, I hope this gives you the strength to open up and talk about your own issues with mental health, and also it gives you the strength to continue and fight another day. This is... The Lulu Logic Podcast. Today's guest was given one month to live if he didn't change his life. Now he's one of Canada's most sought after speakers about mental health. He's an author. His book, Stepping Out of the Shadows, A Guide to Understanding, Healing from Addiction, Goodbye Stress, Hello Life, and Born Resilient. He's a life coach and he's an energetic, captivating, and dynamic motivational speaker. Welcome to the show, Alan Keller. How you I appreciate doing? it. Thank you, Nick. How's it going? Man, you know, I'm I'm living the dream, they say. <laughs> I pronounce your last name right, Keller? <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like Helen Keller. It's, uh, I mean, I've been called a lot worse, but Keller works. Keller works? Or is it is it Keller? I don't want to call it It's actually it Kaler, but then... Kaler. Then they file my name under Taylor, and then we go down that rabbit hole. So, yeah, we'll stick with Keller. What uh, origin is that? Man, that's that's German. Really? Yeah. K-E-H. I thought it, I thought it was just like a Keller, uh, you know, with the H in there. Keller. But uh, Kaler. Is Kaler, that right? yeah. Kaler. Now that we've cleared that up, I feel <laughs> Well, you know, um, I did Rod Peterson a couple weeks ago. He came on my podcast, and um, you reached out to me after that. And and you know Rod. And um, you reached out to me, and uh, you sent me your book right here, Mental Health. It's time to talk. And one of the things is, is that, I started looking at the book and and I started looking at some of the things about you on LinkedIn and, and I asked you to come on the podcast as well. So I appreciate you for coming on, man. And, and coming on to talk about this. No, I'm, I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to share some of my experiences, Nick. Yeah. So where'd you grow up? So <laughs> I grew up small town Saskatchewan and I mean small, like we had, we had four and a half roads and that last half road was gravel. <laughs> But, what's, you know, the na- what's the name of it? Uh, it was Drake. Okay. And, you know, a very warm, loving, tight-knit community. Grew up in a loving home. I think the challenge, though, was that, you know, I didn't grow up talking or learning about things like mental illness, uh, addictions. In fact, some of the teachings I was given is, is if you drink or do drugs, uh, have sex before marriage, you're going to hell. You know, it, yeah. it was a very rigid mentality. And so when some of my destructive thoughts started coming and, and my challenges with mental illness really, really 
took off, I guess, when I was 14. Like, I, I didn't know what to do with that. And so I, I hid behind the smile. I hid behind uh, the mask. You know, I was fortunate to excel in athletics and academics. And the world was just, it was always my stage. And so on the outside, people could see, hey, you know, that's the person who's president of the school. He's athlete of the year, captain of sports teams. And then, you know, Nick, years later when I was living in Edmonton, um, I, re I remember receiving this national scholarship as an outstanding community citizen. And I remember, I remember thinking, this is, this is such a joke. Like, th this is all an act. Doesn't, doesn't anybody see what's going on? But my, my challenge was, I didn't know how to put a voice to my pain. And because I didn't talk about my pain, well, I mean, who suffered more than anyone else? Yeah. So you say you were 14. And I'm trying to think back to when I was 14. And growing up in the, the small town that I grew up in, was it was your small town very diverse or was it mostly Caucasian or how was it growing up there? Yeah, my small town was uh, all Caucasian. So, you know, I kind of I kind of fit the mold in that regard. Yeah. So I, I, I had four. I think we had four black people in my high school, me, my cousin, my sister and one other. And um, we had a we had some Hispanics in our hometown and. You know, but it's just one of those things to where I look at and just being, you know, not looking like everyone else. And I think about going back to that young age uh, of myself growing up. And I, I had a great conversation I want to get to. Um, I talked to one of my friends when I was home last uh, a couple weeks ago. And he asked me, he says, is racism real? He said, did you go through that here in, in, in my hometown? And I said, yeah, I went through some of it. I said, but the best part is I never felt it from anybody that I went to school with. It's mostly the older. Did you ever encounter racism or anything um, or exposed to it when you were younger? No. I mean, I was, in, I was, I was a very privileged kid growing up when I, when I think about that. Um, you know, my, my challenges were much different. Um, I mean, I, I actually left home as soon as I was 16 and I went to a private Mennonite school. Really? So I, I was continuously kind of sheltered and, and in this bubble. And then all of a sudden I just went off to Holland. I lived in Holland for a year. <laughs> and I mean, you, you, you take this kid who grows up in this sheltered world and then, you know, I'm out in Amsterdam and I just, I went nuts. And I, I think it's like, we all want control, right? We all want power. And, and I just went full off the scale. And eventually, thankfully, I, I kind of returned here. But uh, no, I, I never had to deal with that. Did you grow up Mennonite? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not religious today. I'm very spiritual. Um, but yeah, to be transparent, I have a lot of, I guess, demons that I need to work through when it comes to... Uh, uh, religion, just, 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 I guess some, some anger and pain. Uh, and then one of the things, Nick, that surfaced for me probably eight years ago was I started getting flashbacks. I started to recall being sexually abused throughout my childhood. Mm. And I mean, Nick, that's not stuff that we as men talk about, right? Yeah. So that's where, hard. where do you go with that? Where do you go with that pain? And 
um, that's really where I realized, man, you know, our voice is our greatest tool. And if, if I do not put a voice to some of these emotions, if I can't be free from some of this, um, I'm not going to be around much longer. So that was another pivotal time where I really had to force myself to get into those support groups and, and surround myself with other people who, who spoke my language. So, you know, this, this process of work and, and healing, it doesn't stop, does it? No. Dude, that's, um, that changes the, you know, they say a lot of, you know, hurt people hurt people. Yes. Right. And when we look back and, and you talk about being sexually abused and in most of these cases, it's people that we know. Right. Right. And even like black on black crime, white on white crime, anything on anything crime, it's all crimes of proximity. Right. When you grow up in a small community like that, was it kind of, you know, do they kind of like silence you because they want to keep the community moving in one direction and um, they don't want to mess up the flow, I, I guess I should say. Did you feel silenced? Did you try to talk out about it when you were a child or how was no. that? No, you I didn't. Kept it I to didn't, yourself. I didn't talk about anything because I didn't have any memories, right? Like sometimes with trauma, we just suppress it. We store it because our body understands that should this surface, it's going to be really hard to walk through life. So I, I had no clue that any of that stuff had even taken place till about eight years ago. And actually what it did is it, it answered a lot of the why for me, Nick, because I was always trying to harm or kill myself for so many years. And I never understood the why, like I, I like smoking at an early age because I felt like I was killing something inside. I like Cigarettes drinking. or weed? What's that? Cigarettes or weed? Cigarettes. Oh, okay. You weren't smoking the weed. No, no, <laughs> no. no. The uh, healthy alcohol. man's pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't smoke, I don't smoke either, so. Okay. Yeah. But you, you were smoking and, and you were killing, you felt like you were killing stuff inside you and you were drinking alcohol. What age did that start? Oh, probably 16, 17. And, and I mean, alcohol, I just, it was really, people talk about this, right? Like it's their first love. That, that, that was my first love because I think once I understood how trauma worked and, and you think about even me in the context as a kid, when this abuse is happening, I mean, I'm ready, right? So like my system is always on guard. Yeah. And after these events took place, it's not like anybody came into the room and said, Al, you're okay now. Do, do you need a hug? Do you need to cry? Do you need to release some of that? It, that wasn't there. So what happened for a kid like me is my system was just always on, right? So the very first time that I drank alcohol, it just suppressed my system because alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. So, yeah. so it's like when we have a reward from something, we're going to continue to do it. And I, I lack the tools to manage my system in a healthy way, to regulate it in a healthy way. So I always reached out in unhealthy ways. Uh, you know, I became a compulsive gambler, turned to self-injurious behaviors. Uh, and, and I think, Nick, when I look back at a lot of it, it's like I didn't have my voice. I didn't know how to use it. And, and I think even things like, like the self-harm, it's, it's kind of saying, hey, do you see me now? You know, yeah. I, I'm in a lot of pain. I don't know how, how to talk about my pain, so I'm going to show you. Yeah. 
I, I, that reminds me, there's one night I remember, you know, I seen cutting. So I was like, let me see if this works. Mm. And I started cutting myself. And then I was like, you know what? That's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever done. But it, <laughs> I've always been logical, but it's irrational, right? To even get to the mindset of doing it, right? There's There's so many things that go on that I have so many questions for you coming up. But I want to go back to Holland real quick before we get to this. What age were you when you went to Holland? Were you 17, 18 when you went to Holland or? Oh, yeah, straight out of high school. Straight out of high school. It was actually, it was called Intermeno. It was a Mennonite exchange program. So I, okay. I was given two kind of six month placements. And I'm, I mean, I ended up running away from my host family <laughs> to England. <laughs> so what is that like though? Do you, you just go stay with someone and... Like, I don't, yeah. I don't, I've never heard about that. So is it kind of like the Mormons, how they go on their missions or? Uh, no, this was just kind of, I mean, I didn't know what to do with my life. Um, and this, this person came to our school and talked about this program. So I thought, why not? And all of a sudden, boom, I'm in, I'm living in a forest in Holland. And, and I just, like I said, I, I went nuts because I had left this conservative world and um, holy smokes that. Nick, there is no logical reason that I should still be vertical after the life that I've led. So I'm, 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 ju I'm just so grateful. You remember a lot of those Holland stories? You have one for us? <laughs> Can you share one or will it mess up the new Allen? <laughs> that'll, that'll mess up the brand. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was, you know, it was one of those situations where I got into the underground rave scene. You know, I was this, I was this rave kid. You know, the, the, yeah, the rave sticks. kid. Yeah, yeah. 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 and it, it was just, um, it made me feel alive in a way that I'd never felt before. And I think that I just liked um, not being judged and and just having the opportunity to explore different different things. So it was just a, a year of impulsivity. Like a friend and I, a friend of mine, uh, Ruben, we rented a car and for 12 days, we just traveled seven different countries. And it was, it was amazing. It was amazing just to explore and grow. Yeah. I was just thinking, isn't it crazy that most of the great things in the world or the things that give us the most pleasure is, is bad? <laughs> is that the way, is that the way it should be? Or is that just me thinking that? Well, what's what's an example that you're thinking of, Nick? Uh, sex, drugs, um, drinking, um, you know, the party lifestyle, you know, all those things are bad, I guess. I mean, if you're unmarried and, you know, if you're if you're out every night and you're drinking or you're doing drugs or things like that, it's just yeah, like it makes people feel better, but they're bad. Right. Is there? I guess perception, because when done in moderation, then technically it's not bad, right? Yeah. I guess so. And and see, that was my challenge. I to this day, I just I cannot do things in moderation. I'm I'm just all in, and that's at least I have that awareness, though. Yeah. Yeah. What are you drinking there? You got coffee? Double double from Tim Hortons. <laughs> now, do you drink anymore, or did no. you cut, you cut everything out? You are now, you're sober, no yeah. cigarettes. No. So here's something interesting. Um, this was in uh, September, yeah. about 11 years ago. My best friend who later died by suicide, his name was Justin. Mm. And 
he calls me and he says that he's going to check himself in a treatment center. And I said, what? why the hell would you do that? And he says, man, do you realize that all we've ever done together is drink? And it was the weirdest thing because I was already um, like a motivational speaker talking about my recovery from gambling. And I, honestly, Nick, I didn't even understand that I was an alcoholic. I had been drinking every day. And so I was about to then check myself into a treatment center. And then my girlfriend at the time, Tanya, who lived in Saskatoon and I was in Edmonton, she encourages me just to get through school because it had taken seven years. I'm not a doctor. It took me a long time to get through school. <laughs> and, uh, and she just encouraged me to finish that. So here's the, the crazy thing. I move in with Tanya and her two boys when I was three months sober. I didn't have a lot to offer. You know, I threw my last cigarette out on the drive there. I had a lemon of a car. I had a couple boxes. And where do I get hired? My first job, three months sober. I get hired at an addictions treatment center. So Nick, you're supposed to have two years sobriety, right? And mm -hmm. this just this is the theme. I, nobody asked me, but but when you get into that addictive lifestyle, it's the lying, it's the manipulation. And so, ironically, I learned how to be sober by being a counselor, which I don't recommend that approach. But uh, um, it just speaks to where I was and how unhealthy I think a lot of my uh, my behaviors were and the the fact that Tanya and her two kids welcomed me into their house you know that was that was so it always like I in some of my keynotes I have a picture of them and 99% of the time I break down because yeah it's like they they loved me for me they saw me like, I didn't have to wear a mask. I didn't have to judge. And Tanya, right away, she says, Al, in this marriage, we are moving forward. There is not going to be addictions in our home. There's not going to be any kind of self-harm. This is going to be a loving home. And so she gave me that very hard approach, which I needed. Because if you gave me an out, I would have taken it. Yeah. So 11 years later, yeah, you know, I'm still sober, which is, <clears throat> it's pretty mind-blowing, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, I've always said, um, if you can't find value in yourself, service others, right? Find value in others, right? And it seems like that's what happened. Like you go and you started working with others that were going through a similar situation in you and it encouraged you and helped you through that. And it's always good to have people around you. Did you ever go through some times where you wanted to push them away? Like, I can't do this? Oh, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's self-sabotaging in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I guess I really struggled with value. Like, like who the hell am I? Even that first book that I wrote, um, authors often say when they get that book for the first time, it's like this fine wine. And no, for me, it was horrible. I, I, I remember there was a garbage right um, beside me when I received the proof in the mail and I was this close to throwing it away because it was like, who, who am I to write something? Who am I to have people around me that genuinely love and care about me? Um, so yeah, it was natural to want to push them away, but um, thank goodness they continuously believed in me. And, and you know, that's why I got myself into those rooms, whether it was bipolar support group, whether it was Gamblers Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, other men who'd been sexually abused. When, when you can hear other people speak your language and share some of your stories, then it that was the most healing 
thing for me. Yeah. I, I just think life is such a great journey of, you know, trying to find yourself, right? Trying to find your true self, trying to be happy in a space that was made for you. You know, and I, I think when we deny ourselves, we, it makes it harder to find our space, right? I always say you find your tribe. Uh, when I talk to kids, I always tell them, like, you have to be unique. There's a tribe waiting for you to advance it, right? And if you don't, or if you're not yourself, you'll never find your tribe because you're so busy, busy trying to fit in other places and do other things that you'll never find the, the tribe that's looking for you, right? And it's, it's really cool to hear you talk about, you know, your journey of, you know, feeling that way, going to Holland, coming back, <laughs> and, and just always constantly searching for something. When did you know, like, that you had found, like, peace or found something that was stable and secure in your life to allow you to then go be better? You know, I honestly don't know that I have found peace yet, Nick. Yeah, that's hard. I, I remember I had a counselor ask me, you know, what would it be like if you didn't have to feel shame? I don't know. Like the, the reality is I find life really hard. Yeah. Um, the difference is that I know that things are not permanent. I have incredible supports around me and I utilize the supports, but the shift, like it's, it's just an evolution, isn't it? It's a process, yeah. not an event. I, I really struggled, and I love what you said, Nick, with the authentic self. You are so right. If we can just be ourselves, we will naturally attract other like-minded individuals. But we have this innate need to fit in, to belong, which then takes us out of that path sometimes. And I think for me is I used to always rely on substances or things outside of myself to feel whole, to feel complete. I hated being by myself because I had no relationship with self. And if I was with myself, I was with this. And I just got assaulted by my own mind. And thankfully over time, and like I've seen almost 30 different mental health professionals. So that's a lot. <laughs> that is a but, lot. <laughs> but I think I was able to take something from everyone. I was able to remove a lot of, call them toxic or negative people, surround myself with people from my tribe as you, as you said. And through that, and by doing the work, like, I mean, going within, and that was probably the hardest thing to actually look at some of this and to be with my pain and not run. Um, through that, I've been able to become more comfortable. Yeah. But I, I do remember, Nick, early in my sobriety, I, I, I was in Victoria on a holiday and I stood by the ocean and I remember feeling what people probably call peace. And I remember even thinking, is this what peace is? And I wanted to hold on to it so bad. And I actually picked up a handful of rocks from that beach and, and I carried those with me for, man, I, I probably still have them in this office, but it's, it's like, I just wanted it so bad. And, and everybody wants pleasure and they want to run from pain, right? Like yeah. that's just logical. But the problem is a lot of people don't know how to do that. I think back to in the middle of my career, 
like right around the heights of the best I was doing. Um, I was going through a lot of issues with my ex-fiance and uh, a lot of personal issues and and things from childhood was flaring up and you know um and we went to we started going to counseling right and a lot of the personal journey of then being able to deal with something from childhood growing up uh insecurities uh vulnerabilities and all those things those were hard do you have anything that you can help people because I know how hard it was because it, there were days that I felt like I went back to that because it brought up those memories of how much easier it was. Does that make sense? I think you're frozen. Sorry about that. It froze out a little bit, but we're back. But yeah, it's just when you, when you have to relive these experiences from your childhood or from these hard times when you're talking to someone and you have to really dig deep within yourself, it's easier to revert back to those things because that's a comfortable place. And you realize that you've lived in a comfortable place and you didn't stretch yourself. Like, is there any tips that you can give people that would make that transition a little bit easier from getting out of your old form and, and becoming your new? Uh, I almost, Nick, I almost feel like you spent years working as a counselor opposed to actually playing in the, the CFL. You, you <laughs> have a great wisdom about you, and I like how you set up questions. Um, Thank you. You're so right. Uh, you're like a knowledge keeper, Nick. You know that? I try, man. I, you know what? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a constant learner. That's I'm awesome. That's, learner. that's what it's all about. I think I had a a professor at the University of Alberta who kind of put me at that proverbial fork in the road. And he said, are you happy? And I'm like, that, no, I'm not happy. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I realized, okay, if I want something different, I have to do something different. So if I went down the same path, I knew what that looked like and that it would never lead to happiness or peace. So I had to start carving out a different path, which yeah, it was difficult, but I was able to get supports in place. I didn't, I didn't have to fight it alone. And I learned pretty quick that the shortest way through is always the middle, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when, when you go around a problem or an issue, exactly like you said, Nick, it, it comes back. And so I had to start thinking about what it was that I wanted and understand that it was up to me to create the change. Nobody's gonna do the work for me. And I think that it's that addict mentality for me where I want it to be better now. I want it to be fixed now. I want it to feel good now. And that's not how it works. You know, you have to earn your freedom. And I'm not there yet, but I, I feel like I'm on the right path. Nick. Let me spin it. Let me spin it back to you. Okay. What was that process like for you as a man trying to sit in front of a professional and going to some of those places of despair and being vulnerable? You know, I don't think nobody really knows this. I don't think I've ever openly talked about this, but 
my first or second year, I think it was my first year in the CFL, I was going to see a sports psychologist regularly, right? I always had the fear of not of failure, but of people ripping it away from you, right? One mistake, they were just going to rip everything away from you, right? You see it in the sports media all the time. So they put you on a pedestal that you don't want to be on. You just want to go play the game. You want to have fun. You enjoy being around people. But then they put you on this pedestal and they expect you to be perfect. And that scared me because I would see everybody around me that would go out and make one mistake. And what's the first thing they say? He's not a role model. He's not this. He's not this. She's not this. And it's like, well, they never said they were. Right. I knew I was going out drinking. I knew I was hanging out and partying. Um, wasn't big into drugs or anything, but like I knew I was, I knew I was doing everything that they were going to take and use it against me at some point. Right. So it was a fear. So I had a, I had just this fear and it terrified me because the better I played, the more of a pedestal or the higher I got, so the bigger the fall. So I'm in this place where I'm scared. I'm, I'm 21, 22 years old, and I'm having fun playing football, but I'm terrified that my lifestyle doesn't fit with what the image should always be. And then I think the process it led me to was um, is closing the gap, right? I wanted to be around more people. I wanted them to see my lifestyle. I wanted to drink around fans because then they seen me drink. So then they knew who Nick was. And it wasn't like, okay, well, you know, I'm not going out to portray anybody or anything. I wanted you to know who I was genuinely, right? I had my issues. I had, I had my troubles just like everybody does. But I think that was the biggest part is I had to go see a sports psychologist early on. And then in the middle it was more of relationship counseling and psychology because there was a lot of things that I needed to do to move forward in my life. And um, I just think I came with um, the realization of I've adapted this way of thinking and I think I'm very simple. I allow others to make decisions and then I don't get mad at the decisions they make. I just have to now do accordingly. Hmm. Does that make sense? For sure. And I think that's the best way for me is people are always going to make decisions they want. Um, but those decisions might not always be healthy for me. And sometimes when I make decisions that aren't healthy for people, then I think they should remove themselves from my life. Hmm. Yeah, well said. And you got to be willing to accept that. Right. You got to be willing to accept people coming in and going out of your life. Doesn't mean you're not friends anymore. Doesn't mean you don't like the person. Just means you have to be willing to accept that now I have the freedom to make my decisions. And I can choose to make better decisions for people. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So, Nick, was it your decision to see the sports psychologist off the hop or were yeah. you encouraged yeah no i had to man it was um like i said it was my my football career was such a roller coaster um 
you know, almost committed suicide a couple times and 2005 was probably the last time where it happened. But, um, yeah, man, it was just one of those roller coasters. We, we'd win, I'm up, we lose, I'm down. And, but like I said, I was just so terrified as a kid being in this, this place that, um, you know, it was different in college. I, I went to a small school, man. And I could walk across campus. Everybody's like, Nick, what's up? And you know, you're, you're just in this chill space. It's just college kids, right? It's people you see every day. You know, you go to class and they talk about how great you played in the game, but now you're playing on TV in front of millions of people. And now, you know, people comment on you and, and say things. And I don't think they have a true understanding that, that athletes, what they go through, right? I think they just see it as, you know, win, lose. Did you play well? Did you not play well? Um, I'm, I'm reading a book that um, Nick Ring, um, ex-MMA fighter, ex-UFC fighter, um, he was on, he talked about called the winner effect. And I'm learning a lot about that, right? And, this, and, it, and it talks about, I'm on the part right now where it talks about testosterone being released in the body, even when you're a fan. Like when your team loses, like they've done all these studies of testosterone being released in the body when your team wins and you get this euphoric feeling like, yeah, my team just won, like you were a part of it. And so there's so many things that go through and, and you know, so many different animals um, and things. So it's, um, it's been a journey. I'll say that. Yeah, um, I'm in a better like place now, though. <laughs> you're at a better place, though, because you earned that, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously you did the work and I, I respect that. I, and I mean, I, I didn't know that part and I appreciate you sharing that with, uh, back in 2005 with some of your, your struggles. And I can only begin to understand some of the anxiety that you must've felt under that microscope. But what I love again, is that you just came back to your authentic self. And I think that that right there is the piece that I want to help empower people to feel. Like yeah. we, we fear being judged, don't we? We fear what, what people are going to say about us. But if we can just be our authentic self and look in the mirror at the end of the day and be happy with you know, the way that we acted, I mean, that's all that matters. So we got to filter through all this other garbage to, to get to that place. Yeah. And you know, right now, I just feel like even when you look at politics and things, I think people are putting so much over morals. People are trying to justify bad behavior, no matter right. what side it's on, no matter where you look. And I think we're in a place right now that's very dangerous as a society. Anytime you can justify bad behavior by any person, right? Anytime you can justify some of the things that goes on, it, it just becomes very dangerous place for people to live in, right? Because if I feel like I have to hurt you yeah, or do anything, um, I mean, we can even go back to Nazi Germany. They felt like they justified killing Jews, right? They tried to justify it. And I think that's what we're getting back to. Not to the extent, and I'll never say anything like that about the Holocaust because that was a terrible, terrible thing, but they felt like they were justifying it. And that's what I was trying to, you know, say, and it's just a very dangerous spot right now. You see anything with the world right now that you, what do you, what does the world need? 
it's it's kind of so here's the thing if i held up a piece of white paper right or well, i don't even have a piece of white paper here's a piece of yellow paper <laughs> and you know i hold this up what do you what do you see i don't know if you can see that on the camera yeah it's a little uh it looks like a little circle yeah That's... black dot yeah so my point is i think that sometimes we can get so focused on what's going wrong in the world that we forget about what's going right yeah because there's a lot of yellow there so the challenge is where do you want your eyes to rest and we talked about this before you hit the old record button you know social media there is a lot of negativity in the world there's also a lot of positivity and at the end of the day it it is up to us to decide what we want to give our time and energy towards and it's easy to get sucked into this it's easy to get caught up into drama and so we can either play a part of that um, or we can try to deviate and we can try to make positive change and and i think that what i see nick is just so many people who are lost i think that a lot of people have no clue who they are i think that we're addicted to doing i think that we love to live outside of ourselves because then we don't have to be with this I think that there's such a disconnection and I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that what we're both trying to do is just help people get back to their authentic self yeah. and, and find some peace in their life. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. No, you got to take that first step and like, you know, I say, um, at, for addictions at a, you have to stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Right. I think that's that was like my first step is not is to really say, look, this is not who I am. Right. But I've always been able to I think like I was explaining this to my sister yesterday. So in sports, if I run a route wrong, I identify it instantly. A mm. coach doesn't have to tell me I ran it wrong. Um, teammate doesn't have to tell me anything. But I think that's how life is. If you can start to identify those behaviors and you can know i'm back in that mode or i'm getting back in that mode and now you can start to put filters in place that helps you deviate from going back down that path like you said earlier did is that something you've done is to be able to identify the traumas and be able to know when you're getting back in that mindset or going back into that that feeling that feels comfortable um, that you've been in so long? Totally. It's, it's like, we are creatures of habit. Yeah. And I kind of use the metaphor of a snowfall. Like if, if three feet of snow happened, which I pray would never happen tonight, but if we woke up and we had to walk to the road to get into our car, we would drag our feet and we'd create a path. And the next time that we left the house, we'd walk the same path. And so whether you're running a route or I'm engaging in self-injurious behaviors or self-defeating thoughts. We have created those patterns in our mind for years. Yeah. So all of a sudden to expect that we're just gonna, you know, create new pathway pathways and it's gonna be easy is setting ourselves up for a very difficult journey. And so I think that for myself, I had to learn how to be a little gentler to myself. I had to learn how to be realistic. And I don't know about you, but I used to talk to myself in ways that I would never talk to anyone else. And yeah. so I learned the need to just be kind, not only to myself, but then, then also 
uh, to others. And kind of what I said before, like I, I don't have to fight this alone. And so getting myself into, like you, you mentioned the first step with AA. I mean, when I went to my first 12 step meeting, um, I cried in my car for so long because I knew that if I opened up the door and walked into that building, that it was real. And I think that for myself, I, I lived in the world of denial because I didn't want to accept it. And, and so I could acknowledge it. And I think that there's a very distinct difference between acknowledging something and accepting it because yep. accepting it means that there probably has to be action, right? And I find that a lot of people can acknowledge that they're not happy. They can acknowledge that they're in pain. But when you spin it around like that professor did to me and says, you know, what are you going to do about it? I find a lot of people aren't going to do a damn thing. No. Because of what you said, that they're complacent and it's easier. One of the best companies I'm, I'm a part of now, it's called iBoomerang. And been a part of it now for just over five months. But the personal journey of listening to people that talk about a personal journey over a business. Majority of the time that I hear the leaders talk, it's about you and a personal journey. It's not about a business, hmm. right? One of the things was it's okay to accept where you are, but it's not okay to stay there. That was so powerful because like, it doesn't matter where you start. Doesn't matter if you start at the bottom, if you think you're in the middle, if you think you're on top, you still got to keep moving forward. Right. And, and Johnny Wimbry said something a couple weeks ago that was very fascinating. He says, we have to start believing like our nine month old self again. Right. Because our nine month old self was ready to walk. And it kept getting up, it kept crawling, it kept standing, it kept trying to talk, it kept everything that we do now. Think about our nine month old self at every step of believing that it wanted to walk, believing that we wanted to talk, believing that we can do everything that of the people around us were doing. Right? How powerful is that? To put ourselves back in that mindset because now I believe everybody believes, you know, that's not for me. I can't do that. I can't achieve that. You know, somebody's lucky because they got what they got. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you said earlier, from the self-sabotage to the way you talk to yourself. How do you overcome that? Because I still get up sometimes and I still doubt myself, but I, I find belief through others and, and, and just continue to go through it. I know I just got to keep pushing through it. How do you handle that? Well, I think number one is recognition. Acknowledge that that's what's taking place. Stop with the denial, stop deflecting, sit with self and feel. I mean, give yourself permission to feel. That was, that, that was the one thing I always tried not to do because I didn't want to feel. And the other thing, Nick, I think is um, gratitude. I think that gratitude truly is probably one of the, I don't know, secrets to life is appropriate. But when, when you start to think about what's going right opposed to what's going wrong, it will actually change the way that you see the world around you. And the reality is we have a lot going for us. We all have challenges, but it, it kind of goes back to this, right? This, this black dot. Yep. You can focus on what's going wrong or uh, what's going right. 
Gary Vee said uh, something the other day. He said, you got to get in the gap. And it's the G is gratitude. <laughs> Are you grateful for your health or what you currently have? Like, like you just said, you can focus on the negative. You can focus on COVID. You can focus on uh, being on lockdown. You can focus on losing jobs. You, but are you grateful that you're healthy? Are you grateful of what you have? And the A is accountability. Are you accountable for your own happiness? Right? Are you being accountable to do the things you need to do to be happy? And the P is perspective. How are you choosing to view yourself in your future? You know, and I think for me, I get lost in all of these things because they take my attention and it's so much to grasp, right? Like in order for me, I, I've noticed that a lot of the people I hang out now with are CEOs of their own companies. That's led me to be a CEO of my own company, right? just by shifting what I listen to, how I act. Uh, people always say, you know, if you think it, you know, it, it you'll, you'll attract it. <laughs> and I, and I always say, no, if you work towards it, <laughs> you know, you got to put action to it. Right. Thinking, thinking's good. Like I can think I want a relationship, but that doesn't mean I'm ready for one. I, I have to start putting actions in place to be ready to accomplish what I want to accomplish, right? I couldn't think about just being a great athlete. What actions do you put yeah. to building your life and finding that peace? Is there an everyday thing that you do that helps you to get closer and closer to that every day? I guess first and foremost, Nick, I'm blessed to have a wife who I can be open and honest with. Uh, a person who holds me accountable and who pushes me to step outside of my comfort zone. Um, I also, like you, you know, when we do these events and when we're able to share some of our lived experiences and there's people who approach us and say those powerful words, me too, or we can connect with them in some way, that helps propel me to just continue to grow, you know, and um, do you know Clint Malarchuk? He was the Buffalo Sabres goalie who almost bled to death on the ice in front of everyone. No. Um, he's a good friend of mine. And I mean, he, we both talk about mental health as men and he feels as though he still has a bullet in his head from, from a suicide attempt. I mean, I would highly recommend you reading his book too. You'd, you'd enjoy it. Clint Malarchuk. Um, and he says the only reason that he feels that he's been spared is to carry a message. And that resonates with me because, um, yeah, the things that I've done in my life, um, there's just no, no logical reason that I should be here. So when I'm able to speak and share some of the things that I've learned, it's just absolute gratitude. It is redemption. And I'm just going to keep doing it until creator says time's up. And I think that, there's those pivotal moments like uh, like losing my best friend to suicide. That was one of those, man, like in a twisted way, his death kind of saved my life because I, I saw, you know, like I felt what that all looks like. Yeah. 
that's have you ever have you ever forgave yourself out loud has that been a part of your journey like looking in the mirror and say i forgive you that's a good question nick i think we're our harshest critics yeah right um that is a process i honestly don't know that i'm there um and so even saying that that's almost sometimes like even yesterday i was i was doing a podcast and someone said oh wow you're a motivational speaker you must have everything together and i'm like nope <laughs> <laughs> nope but it's just an evolution it's it's just ongoing work so i don't ever pretend that life is all you know rainbows and unicorns um but you know i appreciate you asking that and uh um, I'm on my way. I'll say it's awesome. I'm on my way. What about you? I mean, you've already shared a few of your challenges, Nick. Would you say that you are nope. at a point where you've reached that? No, I haven't. Never done it. Mm. And, and I thought of it because I, I was watching uh, Real Sports last night, and there was a ex NFL player that went to forgive his dad when he had a when he had his daughter. Right. And he hadn't talked to his dad in 27 years. His dad killed his mother. And to find the awareness to say it out loud to him is something that's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. And as much as we beat ourselves down and doubt ourselves and try to figure out why we are in the situation we're in, like, maybe that's a great, great step is just a start to heal yourself is just to look in the mirror and you know those those conversations I just because it just hits me now like how powerful that could be just to have that moment with yourself because we think about having self-time is just sitting in silence and thinking but to actually look in the mirror and see the reflection and to even start to encourage yourself and say I love you I forgive you. Mm -hmm. I need you. Everything that we want from other people, we can find in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I just think how powerful that could be to, to put yourself in such a, a vulnerable situation with yourself and almost separate yourself at the same time and have that conversation with yourself that, that can bring healing. Right? Because we're all, we all need to heal from something. Right. Like there's nobody walking this earth that doesn't need to heal from something. Yeah, you're right. You know, for me, um, when I was first told to stand in front of the mirror and say, I love you, I couldn't. And so what worked for me is I said, I like you. And that was, mm. that was, that was as good as it got for me. I have evolved into love. Um, but so my first mental illness, it was later diagnosed as body dysmorphic disorder because, because I, I mean, Nick, I didn't look in a mirror for 13 years. Really? Because I, I, I saw what other people didn't see. So I really have had to fight to even do things like this and see a reflection of myself. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's work. It, it really is work. And um, how then, if you haven't arrived at that place, 
how do you feel that people can get to that point of forgiveness and acceptance? I just think you gotta, it's, it's hard, but you gotta know who you are and you have to accept it. I think the first thing is, like you said earlier, the first thing is acceptance. Once you can accept it, you say, I'm not perfect. Maybe that's how you start. I'm not perfect. I don't look the way I want to look. My attitude is not the way I want it to be. And then you try to encourage yourself, right? Because I think that's what so many people look for in others. And if you can give it to yourself, how much more powerful are you? Right? If you, if people stop looking for verification from other people and start to find it in themselves, how much of a better world will we have? You know, and my journey has been tough. Um, I struggle all the time and it's not a, it's not an easy thing. Verbalizing makes it, makes it rational, right? Being very open and, and vulnerable and being in this space, right? I always feel like we have an obligation to talk about these things because how many people are going through it? Mm -hmm. right? So then what, what are some of your greatest struggles right now? Oh man, just mentally, the mental hurdles, uh, the self-sabotage, um, you know, I, I try to mentally take myself out of things like, um, creating this media company and doing things. And, um, it just, sometimes I just feel like, you know, it's not, it's not going to work, but then I push forward because I know it's going to work. Mm. Right. So it's, it's kind of like this, the self doubt. I mean, even playing football every year, I would show back up the training camp and I would doubt, could I still do it? Maybe I'm done. Maybe, and I'm like, man, I just worked so hard this offseason. Why would I think, you know, it, you go into a game, and it was always like beginning of the year, there's always like one play. There was one play I would make at the beginning of the season, and it gave me the belief, like, we can still do it. Let's go get it. But I didn't believe it until then, right? So I would I'd go out there, I'd work, and I would just work, work, work. But I'd always self-doubt myself. And honestly, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why I do it. I don't know why it's been ingrained in me to always doubt myself on what I can accomplish. But I keep proving myself wrong because I keep going and accomplishing, right? I think that's the difference between me and most people is I don't allow it to hinder, uh, it hinders me, but I don't allow it to stop me from progressing. Right. Right. So you can recognize it. But then, as you said, you persist. And, yeah. and I'm going to guess, Nick, that for you, when you were self-doubting all those years as an athlete in the CFL, you obviously probably couldn't tell anyone about those doubts, right? Um, some people knew. I think there's some people knew. Like, my best friend knows everything about me, right? So you always had that yeah. A couple people around you. That's I've good. had some I've had some stable people around me, man. I, I damn sure couldn't do it by myself. Like this is a this is a collective group of people that you know that have helped me get to, to where I'm at. You know? Yeah. And and I think that's key. Um yeah. surrounding yourselves with, with people who really 
just accept you for who you are. Nick, do you find in your experiences that a lot of people know who they are? No. I think a lot of people know who they want to be or who they want to try to be. Mm -hmm. Like you're made perfect. Mm. Right. And I, and I will always believe that you are made perfectly. Now, how you choose to deal with yourself and how you choose to deal with situations is different. Right. Um, to kind of deviate from that question, I want to ask you a question real quick. I was watching that Brian Gumble last night and kids and trophies. Like God said, they used to make around $100,000 a year because of trophies. Now they're making over $50 million a year because there's a league where every kid gets a trophy. It's an all-star trophy for participating. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I just think of the psychology in going out into the world and not having a competitive bone in your body and expecting the world to give you something. I think it creates such a negative that people aren't able to deal with things anymore. For me, competition gets me through. I compete with life. I compete to be better every day. I can't go ride on a spin bike without trying to be better. I can't, if you put up a leaderboard, I'm trying to get to the top of the leaderboard. That's just the way I was made. But I truly believe competitiveness creates my world. Right above everything else, the love, the hate, the whatever competitiveness makes me who I am. Right. And when I think about kids and trophies or people growing up now, and you said you were top of your sports and you received awards, how do you view that situation with kids receiving participation trophies instead of? just the mentality of going out and competing (laughs) to earn it man that is a very interesting rabbit hole that you want to go down (laughs) (laughs) so i can understand the psychology behind wanting to ensure that nobody's feeling lesser than right um and i mean i grew up in a town where hockey was life And if you did not fit that mold, you are an outcast. And I think that's kind of what they're trying to create with that system, right? Where just everybody is on point. But I can fully appreciate, to your point, the need for competition. That's the world that we live in. When when people leave school, it is a competitive, uh, I mean, trying to get a job. You have to fight to get work. And so it's... I'm not sure, Nick, if we're doing a disservice to kids through that approach. And I mean, this is a hot topic where you have people on both sides of the fence. Yep. Um, I think that for me, the short and sweet is I'm just going to go back to the things that I can control and I'm going to release the rest. So for me as a father, I'm going to try to validate the skill sets and, um, you know, values that I think are important for our kids. And um still trying to get them to always like what you're saying you know push the envelope stop settling and and have that fire for life in your book you talk about it says i remember in gym class as a child the teams were always picked by two captains who took turns selecting each team member 
one by one. The boys who were athletic were chosen first. Meanwhile, the physically weak boys were perceived to be less, less value and were chosen last by default. Time and time again, the strong boys received a confidence boost while the others left feeling as though they didn't measure up. Even when we played games where athletic ability didn't matter, those same boys were chosen or always chosen first. It was as if they were automatically superior in every area. Right. Should we be in a situation or should there be, I'm trying to see how to phrase this correctly um, because it's not phased out, but I, be, I believe that's a positive thing. If I know that you're better than me, I can now work every day to obtain what you have. That's my mindset. Um, or I can choose, you know what? They're just better. And choose to go inward. When you write that, like, how do you see it? Because I want to see how you see that. So how I see it is this. You and I were both fortunate to excel at athletics, right? Yeah. And I, and so I became a phys ed teacher that, you know, I did kinesiology and then I did phys ed and I started teaching high school. Well, I always thought that phys ed was this place that was so wonderful for everyone because that was my experience. Then Nick, I had to take <laughs> dance class. I had to be a dancer and I had to leave my pride at the door. And, and we were asked to get into groups of five to create these choreographies and nobody wanted me. Nobody wanted me. And I'd say, oh, can I, oh, no, sorry, we're full. And I felt, <laughs> I experienced that discomfort, that shame, that, that I didn't belong. And it was the best thing that happened to me because I realized that when I'm teaching phys ed or I go back to you know, what you just read, how did it feel for those others to not belong and to feel lesser than because they internalized, right? Yeah. So that whole setup of captains and one picking, I mean, to this day, I hate that system. I hate it because you got to go back to how that would make them feel. And I get that they can, you know, I totally, I know where you're going and I can appreciate that point. Yep. Um, but there, that's the balance. Yeah. It's such a, it's a hard thing, right? Because you can be on both sides. Yep. Yeah, you can argue both. When you, because when I look at it, I'm like, what is the, there, I know there's no perfect system, but what is the system that would allow the alphas to compete at the highest level and allow the others to come along, if that makes sense? Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer or else we'd be writing a really good book that would do well. <laughs> because, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it, it goes back to even when I would uh, teach phys ed and we would have an A team and a B team, right? So you have yeah. the, the top alphas out there first and then the B team. Because, so it, it, it's hard because we live in this system now where we're always trying to protect. And I think that the intent is pure. We, want, we don't want people to feel pain. But in the same breath, I think that's also potentially a disservice. Yeah. So maybe Nick, the best thing to do is just have open, honest conversations without the judgment, um, come at it from both sides and, and just be aware of what actions could potentially do. What do you think? Yeah. Because I think some kids are like, I don't care. I, some kids are like, I don't want to be great at basketball. 
Yeah. Right. Some kids are like, I do. And, but one of the biggest things I, I, I fear is life doesn't protect you. Yeah. Right. Um, how do we stop protecting kids so much, but start having those conversations to where they can now grow and be better? Because when you're protected and then you go into the world that's cruel and you go into the world that doesn't care about you and you lose your protection. Now you're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Now you don't know how to handle the disappointment of losing a job. You mm-hmm. don't know how to handle the disappointment of not getting a job. You don't know how to handle all these different things. I look at my life like I've never had security. Hmm. Right. In football, there's no guaranteed contracts. If they cut me one day, then I don't get paid the next week, even if Mm. they cut me the day before the game. So I've lived in this life without security, but I've lived in this life of survival of the fittest for so long Mm. that now I do believe I can conquer anything and be anything I want to be because I've been in this mentality for so long. But everybody's not been in this mentality. So I understand that everybody can't do that. Right. And so I just think it's a very interesting topic and a very interesting thing that how do we help our kids? Cause I have a five-year-old daughter. Right. And I tell her all the time, I said, my job is to get you to 18 years old and be self-sufficient in this world where you can go out and, and, and be who you want to be. And, and you can be sufficient to make good living and live the life that you want to live. That's my job as your parent. Right. Right. So every day, that's what I work towards. Because once she's 18, I can't, I can't make decisions for her anymore. Like you go into Holland, nobody can make decisions for you anymore. Yeah. Right. But I don't, I don't treat, I don't, I don't treat her like a regular child. I treat her as if I want her to excel. So I'm a little harder on her at times. And I know that, you know, I always think that you, you always learn as you grow. Right. When you look back, you say, okay, well, my parents did the best they could. Right. Right. And you find some understanding when you realize that some of the decisions they made were a little harder than you thought as a child. Right. Right. So. But I think it goes back to like, like there's a great line, you know, blessed are those who struggle. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of truth in that because through all your experiences, Nick, you know, you, you have become resilient. Um, but you worked at that. And I think that for me as a parent, it's teaching kids to go within. Like if, yeah. if they have a relationship with themselves, they're not going to, it, you already touched on this, then they're not going to have to seek outside of themselves for something that already exists, right? Yeah. And um, one of the, the things that I'm really passionate about is just teaching people how to feel and, and that's, especially for boys, especially for men, you know, to, to, that it's okay to go in here because I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. How, how do you, how have you found it being now that you can? Uh, liberating. Yeah. Um, scary. But. Because um, you talk yeah. about the six foot five guy walking up to you. Oh, that wasn't to me. That was, okay. um, that was, um, uh, geez, I'm drawing blank. Um, yeah, that was a guy from North Battleford. 
Okay. And he, that was while he was in the psychiatric center. Yeah. That's just such a powerful thing, right? Thinking of what masculinity is and thinking of what I want to be or I'm trying to achieve. And then when he said that he was suffering the same thing, how freeing that must have felt. You know, I, Nick, I feel for men who are six, five, who are large in their demeanor or who are built because after a lot of my events, the people who approach me or, or I do a lot of uh, work in the trades, right? Whether it's oil, gas, or it's the blue collar. And these are men who are built. And so that's, a, <laughs> they're up against that already because there's this perception that, whoa, you know, they're so strong. These are the men who, they have feelings too. Yeah. And these are the men who I feel for the most because, because when they cry, a lot of people, they don't know how to respond. Yeah. I mean, the reality is if you walk into a room and you see a woman with her head on the table crying, usually you know what to do. If you walk into that same room, but it's a man with his head on the table crying, now all of a sudden we don't know what to do? Well, do we not all have the same basic needs? Yeah. And so I think that where we run into problems is the approach, you know, and we don't always know what to do. Yeah. Here you say... I have found that I still need to isolate myself at times to recharge and find my inner peace. Yeah. Recently, I removed myself from the majority of my social media connections for every adorable cat or puppy video. There seems to be 10 new forms of hate on display every day. It's hard to feel good about yourself when you have to take, when you have taken on negative feelings such as jealousy, fear, distrust, anger, and greed. I have arrived at a place where I accept five simple truths in my life. I find that this, these five simple truths are so powerful. One, you need to breathe to survive. So I continue to learn how to breathe. Huge heart rate variability. You need to drink water to survive. The one essential thing that you need in life. You need to, you need sustenance of some form, preferably healthy. You need shelter from the elements and five, you need others and others need you. Can we go through those? Like we're yeah. starting with one. Yeah. yeah you so need that, to breathe to survive. That's Eric Harder, right? That's yeah. Eric Harder's story that you're alluding to. Yeah. And yeah, well, you said it before. Sometimes we just got to keep things simple. And, and sometimes that's, that's truth. Sometimes all that we can do is like, there were days, Nick, when I just fought to stay alive. And I mean, I just had to grab a chair and just try to stay stationary. So to go back to what Eric's saying is, yeah, sometimes we just got to focus on breath. Yeah. And one of the things that I find fascinating, you do this too. You like, I've, I've gone hundreds of schools and I still enjoy talking to youth, but breath is so fundamental to wellness. There are a lot of schools right now, especially in Asia, where day one with those five-year-olds, they don't, they don't talk about shapes or colors. They talk about breath because they know what that can do for them. And so that to me is number one, to just be still. And that really forces you to go within. Just be. Just be. Just be. Right. Uh, meditation. Heart rate variability, right? Your heart rate, your rhythm of your heart rate, uh, heart rate 
variability can ease your mind, can heal your body, right? To find that space. And, and sometimes you might get two minutes a piece a day, just in that. I think that's so powerful. Um, I wish I could do it more. <laughs> I have this thing called silent mode. You know, I've ordered a lot of stuff off of Amazon and Facebook lately, but silent <laughs> mode is just, it goes around your eyes and it has speakers in the ears and it's like a little mask and, um, and it comes with an app and it has like the little Zen stuff for like power naps and for breathing techniques, you can listen to it and do like eight minute breathing. Uh, okay. I should do that every day. Mm. I don't, but I should, but see, that's what I need the discipline. I need the discipline in those areas. I should stretch every day and I should do that. Right. So what's your barrier? Why aren't you? Um, I like discipline in certain areas, right? And uh, I, I know that uh, to do something every day, I know that I need. I work out a lot uh, on the spin bike and, and I do that, but I should stretch more. Like I said, uh, I drink a lot of water. Um, I have a water machine, um, so I drink very good water. And um, I'm a water specialist. I know a lot about water. And um, so, yeah. But yeah, breathing and breathing water and, and relaxation, man, it just, it could change your life. And I know I should do it more. Do you, do you do any meditation or any kind of breathing exercises? Man, I stop <laughs> at that. What I, what I really love about, I mean, I love many things about my wife, but she, she homeschools our youngest too. Mm -hmm. and, and at a very early age, she has taught them how to meditate. She's taught them how to awesome. focus on breath. And I, and I see what it does for them. And so, you know, I think it was two weeks ago, um, one, of, one, of, one of my sons asked me to meditate with them. And I was like, <sighs> and Nick, the first three weeks, I mean, the first three weeks, the first three minutes was just absolute agony. Like I, I still struggle to just be with this. Um, I have to be intentional. I'm learning to take that time and to just be with self. One of the things that works for me is I relax my hands. I just put my hands in my lap. And the beautiful thing is when you relax your hands, everything else will follow. Yeah. So, um, I, I had a counselor early on who, you know, I'm, I'm talking and, and he says, do you realize how many times you're saying I should, I should. And he said, you know, just, just figure out whether or not you want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's truth in that because, when we go on repeat and, and if I'm like, I should meditate, I should, if it's important, do it. If it's not, let it go. Cause otherwise I'm renting out so much headspace. So yeah. I know that it's something like that, that would benefit my wellness. I'm just not ready to do it. And I I'm getting there. Um, yeah. Do you find meditation an easy thing to do? No, because my mind wonders like it's so hard to cut it off. Yeah. Right. So I start to meditate. Then I start thinking about, oh, I could do this. I could do this. I'm like, no, I need to calm, calm my mind. I find that hard to be at peace. Um, yeah. Deprivation tank floating. Have you ever done that? Deprivation what? Tank floating. Oh, hell no. I would lose my mind. No. Really? Are you, aren't you trapped in something? You're not trapped. You just, you just, you know, you close it over you and you're in a dark space and it no. feels like, I close my eyes and I feel like I'm floating in the middle of the ocean. No, my hands are sweaty as you just described that. I'm, I'm nervous and I'm anxious <laughs> and now I need, 
Now I need to go for a run. <laughs> but it's like it's like the 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 water's like body temperature is like ninety eight degrees, so it's warm water. You're just floating. It's it's a thousand pounds of Epsom salt, so it draws out all the toxins from your body, and you just sit there and relax. and And you can put a little noodle under your neck, and if you don't trust it, I usually fall asleep. <gasps> okay, so that works for you. Yeah. Yeah. They say Honestly. an hour and a half, and there's like four hours of sleep. <laughs> no, I think I'd lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> You need sustenance of some form, preferably healthy. What do you take that as? You know, there's that line, you are what you eat. Yeah. I, I mean, I, when, when I was given that month to live from a doctor, I mean, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. Um, it was everything fueled with alcohol and energy drinks and I was having seizures. And obviously in order to be well, you've got to be cognizant of what, what you put into the system. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's like, it's water, you know, it's little things. Um, yep. Water is just an absolute pure substance that can cleanse. And so that's one of the things I try to have, you know, the eight cups of water, limiting caffeine intake. And um, I'm fortunate, you know, my wife, Tanya cooks. And so I'm, I'm eating three balanced meals. Whereas before I moved in with Tanya and the kids, like I didn't, I, well, I didn't have structure. Right? My life was just chaos, and I never took time to sit and eat. I don't eat. You don't eat? No, I eat like once a day, sometimes twice a day. First time I eat usually is around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I wake up in the morning. I take uh, my Alpha Brain here. Plug for Alpha Brain. Learn that. Love, yeah, why not? Learn that from uh, Joe, uh, Joe Rogan. I, I take my Ketone Zone that puts your body in ketosis in 15 minutes. And um, I drink, I take this, I take the morning supplement or the morning supplement, total human. It's like eight or nine pills. Jeez. So good. And then I take the night supplement before I go to sleep. Like you put that in a blender? No, no, no. This is just pills. Uh, oh, it's all capsules in the yeah. packet. Yeah. So I take a bunch of capsules. So it's, it. it's, I think it's like 17 capsules combined. So I was like eight in the morning and then nine at night or something like that, or nine in the morning and eight at night or something. So okay. I take a lot of capsules. Um, I take my ketone zones. I was never been big on supplements, uh, yep. but now that my career is done, I actually do take supplements um, as far as stuff that can help me stay healthy. Yep. Um, because I do, I'm not as active as I was when I played. So I know I need that extra I should have been taking them all along, but you know, you live and you learn. When you know better, you do better. <laughs> That's it. You should. You should. <laughs> but I, I like what you said, where you said that it, people say I should, or I could, or, you know, you said I should, I should, I should. And you're renting that space out that you could be giving it to something else. Right. That you are doing. Can you talk about that and the power just in that statement? I don't know what else to expand on other than, I mean, yeah, we rent out our headspace to so many different things and, and um, we live in that shoulda, coulda, woulda world. And I think that if we can just, it's what you said before too, just get, get focused, figure out what you want and do it. Um, yeah. it it's, it's that simple. Yeah. 
The tattoos. The tattoos. So, well, the, the first one here, that was a cross. That was a drunken state in Australia where <laughs> I don't even have a lot of memories. And I just remember I didn't even have my money to pay for it. <laughs> and I also remember I said, I'd like it up here. And this big guy says, no, put it here. And I said, yeah, okay, you're the boss. Well, that's on there forever. Um, so then I had to get that covered up. Shame, shame was a dominant feeling, still is, of my life. Yeah. And so that one's, you know, no shame. The, this one is, is significant. So in, in that book, you know, there's a story, I don't know if you got that far, but with Ed Andres losing a son to suicide. No, I haven't seen it yet. Um, so J.A., Justin Andres was, was uh, my best friend. Okay. And um, we, both, we both struggled with mental illness. We both struggled with addictions. And uh, yeah, I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And I yeah. saw that one coming. Um, so he, he had left me a note. And I just traced over the initials J.A. And I, <clears throat> I put them on my throat because that's the throat chakra. You know, like, I'm done yeah. with the silence. I'm, I struggle. And I just know, in particular, so many men struggle. So for me, that is my reminder to just put a voice to this. Yeah. The Phoenix is all about rising up from ashes. <clears throat> The Phoenix, you know, like the Phoenix, that's, that's our logo for our clothing brand, which we're launching next month. Awesome. Because it's, it's like trying to empower people to, to go within and feel that strength. And, and then on the back, it says it, it's Latin for freedom. I'm trying to earn my freedom from a lot of pain. And I think collectively, Nick, we're, we're both walking a very similar path where we're just, we're, we're doing things that we're passionate about. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate Nick that, that you have a, a shared passion for mental health and that you're using your platform for that. That means a lot. It's very important, especially now we have kids taking their lives um, at a rapid rate. This COVID, man, it's, it's really allowed a lot of flaws to surface, right? But I think it's time to, I always say we got to come back better. You got to come back better. You got to go within and you got to come out stronger. You got to come out with, a, with a more of a will to survive and, and more of a will to, to better yourself, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I listened to your one podcast. I don't know if it was with Chad. Um, Chad Owens? I don't know if it was that one, but you know, you talked about the need to plant seeds and how yeah. the harvest is going to come, right? I love that yeah. metaphor. Uh, I think COVID has forced people to go within. It's forced us to slow down. And some people are winning that battle and some people are losing. So this, this morning I did a, a radio interview with Medicine Hat because I'm, I'm sure you've heard about that. Seven men have died by suicide since May. Actually, I think last week was a, a teenager too. Mm. So um, a friend of mine, Mike Cameron, he's in Edmonton, we're hosting a free virtual event and we're just calling it Suicide, uh, a conversation that saves lives. 
because yeah, COVID is, is causing a lot of people to struggle, especially men. And we're seeing such a, a, a spike in suicides that, you know, I, I just, I'm like, what can we do? What can we do for Medicine Hat? So we're, we're doing that free event on Sunday. Yeah, that's such a tragic thing, right? This has put people in a bad situation, right? How do we move forward? What would you think? What's the, what's the best thing that people should start doing on a daily basis to start to heal and start the process? We talk. We remove the masks. We, we demonstrate vulnerability. And vulnerability breeds vulnerability. There's nothing more powerful than a story. Um, that's why I used that platform when writing that book. I knew that if I could get men to just share their stories, other men are gonna latch on. They're gonna be able to identify with different things that they've experienced. And so I go to a lot of communities after suicides. Um, my, my former student's daughter died last year. She was 10. She was 10. And, and I'm seeing um, a lot of boys dying by suicide too. And what motivates me the most, Nick, is, is doing all this for the next generation. You know, my point being, if I go into some of these communities and I look at the adults, especially some of the men, and after these suicides, the men just have, you know, a, a flat affect. They're, they're, not, they're not demonstrating any emotion. They're not talking about it. So kids model what we do right so if yeah. the kids look up and they're like oh we don't talk about this so therefore they keep all the energy inside which is then toxic it, it you know it's 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 gonna be problematic so the the number one thing i think is we just have to start talking openly about this we have to look at some of the scripts what are the barriers why are we so hesitant to talk about mental health why are we so hesitant to be vulnerable what are our fears and just generating that conversation to, to get it all out. And I noticed in the book, there's a story where the guy comes up and says, but they tell you to man up, or they tell you, you know, it's your problem, fix it. Right. What if someone's going through um, a circumstance where they do talk and they do speak up, but then they don't have anyone listening? Is there somewhere where people can go to, have people that care. Yeah, it's everywhere. There's people everywhere. The, the difference is for me, Nick, I was the victim, right? I was like, oh, woe is me. Nobody would understand. And I, and I kind of fed into all that. No, there's resources everywhere. You can pick up a phone. You can call a 1-800-CRISIS number. You can, like, it's everywhere. But the difference is you have to want it. And if you don't trust people, which I didn't, then you can tell a piece of paper anything. And pen and paper became one of my greatest tools because yeah. if emotions are energy, which they are, the, the darkness has to come out. And so I would just write and write and write. And when I was done, I would take that piece of paper, I'd burn it, literally burn it. I would rip it up, burn it. I, I would put it in a balloon. I would just get rid of it because we have to find ways to get any of that darkness out. Yeah. And I what works for you? you? Huh? What, what works, works for, for me, you? man, yeah. self-reflection, the hmm. self-reflection. I mean, um, I've been in a brutally honest world, right? So in sports, 
you know, you hear, you know, you're getting older, or you can't do what you used to do, or you, you're this, or you're that, or you're limited, you know. So once you live in that world, I, I'm pretty good at being able to self-reflect and, and just understand, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going where I wanted to go. I'm not doing what I wanted to do. Hmm. Right. How do I, how do I correct this? Right. So I think I'm pretty self-reflective. Um, you know, my life coach says I should write stuff down more because when you put, when you use a pen form, it actually brings things more to life than just, I do so much on my phone. I one note, right. So I'm always got notes. I've got, I've got quotes in my phone. I've got all kinds of different things that I take that I can go over. I have my daily habits. I have so many things in there, right. That, um, maybe it's a book in itself. The, well, I was going to say, when, when is this best-selling book coming out? <laughs> but I, a I just, winner. Well, like I said, I, I think one is that I'm just a constant learner. You know, I'm always eager to learn more. And, and we talked about the podcast earlier before we, we started recording. Um, hearing these stories, hearing your story, hearing Chad and Alex and all these other guys, their stories, and just get finding understanding in how they created their life, right? And I, I always think, and I'll and I'll I'll probably die thinking this. Most people just gave up before their breakthrough, hmm. right? And um, I think her name is something Sedwick, Anna Sedwick, or something like that. That swam the English Channel, and it was. Uh, it was really foggy and she couldn't see and she'd been swimming a long time and she just gave up and said, I can't do this. She jumps in the boat and she was literally about a hundred yards from the shore. And that's life, right? She goes back on a day. It's not foggy. She swims it even faster because she knew she could do it. Right. When you can't see the shoreline, and when you feel like you're just out here in the water and, and you can drown or anything can happen and you can't see the destination, it makes it very hard. But you got to keep believing. Right. And that's where it goes back to that nine month old self. You got to keep believing that you can get there. You have to keep believing that you can break through because you were made to. Everything about yeah. you was made to succeed. Nick, you don't have just one best-selling book in you. You got about 23. <laughs> you know, and I just, I just ultimately think that, man, I think everybody's made to succeed. Everybody's not made to succeed at being a artist or being an athlete or being, but you're made to succeed. But you have to, yeah, find, like I, I said, you got to find, you got one, you got to, you got to accept where you are, move forward, find your tribe, find the people that's looking for you that's going to help you. And then, you know, keep believing. Go back to that nine-month-old self. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Right? It's just like walking. You didn't you didn't walk the first time you stood up. But when you fail, you didn't think, oh well, I'll never be able to walk. Well, that that goes back to 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 your clothing line, right? The always bet on you. I mean, that's that's a good title. Yeah. For your first book. <laughs> it is, huh? 
always bet on you. Yeah. yeah, I love it, man. It's and but that's what it should be, man. You got to bet on yourself. Agreed. You know, one more quote: Holton Bugs, the CEO of Abu Marine. He says, "You shouldn't have big dreams without expecting big challenges." Right. Very true. The bigger the dream, the bigger the challenges. Expect it. Expect things not to be easy. Expect mm. things to be in your way. But expect to conquer them and expect to overcome them and expect to achieve the life and the dreams you wanted and you, you were destined for. Don't give up early. Right? I think that's the most important thing. Is that a mic drop? <laughs> no, I, I want you to do the mic drop, man. I want you no. to display, man. Like, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about mental health because it's such a needed conversation, All right? Anybody going through things right now, what would you say to them? I think um, our greatest tool is our voice. And I think that, as I said before, we're our greatest barrier. I would really encourage people to take a risk uh, of being vulnerable, of reaching out for help. And what I found in interviewing all those men is that there were a lot of similar themes. People always said, like the men always said that they were so afraid to reach out for support. And they thought that they were going to be judged. And my point is with all of them, what they thought was going to happen did not happen. It was the opposite. They were actually embraced for being vulnerable. And most importantly, they said that finally they felt free. They felt like they didn't have to wear the mask anymore, like they could be their authentic self. And, and so I think that if people are struggling right now, it's just like, like I get the risk. I get what it takes to be vulnerable and to walk into spaces or to pick up the phone and make the call. I get it, but I also get the rewards. Yeah. You know, like, like I would not have a beautiful wife, four healthy kids, a home, not a house. If I was never vulnerable. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, I, I think what I love most about this is how vulnerable, how much of a journey you're still on and, um, and then we're all on and for you to continuously openly share, but also to motivate others that's going through the same thing. Right. When they see us on a stage or they see you on a stage and they can say, this guy's got it together. No, we're going through the same things. Right. Right. I struggle just like you. Right. I've just found some ways that help me cope a little bit better or a little bit easier. And I want to share them with you. Right. Right. Yeah, man, Nick, I, I really appreciate, um, again, you taking the time to even have this conversation I think we're into the fourth hour here of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell people how they can find your books, your clothing line coming out and everything else. Yeah, I guess probably the best way, Nick, is just through my website, Alan Kaler, uh, <laughs> dot -E com. And, you know, I had a lot of people who just said that they'd be happy to listen to me. And I guess I want to put that out there too for, anyone who's still listening at this point. Um, I think they will be, you know, this okay, is cool. it's such a, it's such a powerful conversation. Good. I, I hope they are. 
And I just want to extend, like, I am more than happy to be an ear. Sometimes it's easier talking to someone you don't really know. Um, go to my website and just fire me an email. I'd be more than happy to listen. Maybe I can point you in the right direction. Um, but let me know how I can support you. There it is. This is another episode of the Lugu Logic Podcast. And we out. Peace.